0: The scripture reading for this afternoon, taken in connection with our preparation for the Lord's Supper, which is coming next week, is taken from John chapter 3. You'll be able to find that on page 1222 of your Pew Bible. John chapter 3, and we'll be reading the verses 1 to 21. Jesus has been traveling around and his preaching has already provoked several of the Jews, the most prominent among which are the group that call themselves the Pharisees. And we come to our chapter here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the world has come. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. We'll also read together from the Belgian Confession, Article 35, dealing with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we look ahead to the Lord's Supper. We'll be reading the first half of that article. You'll be able to find that on page 514 of your book of praise. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ has instituted the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and sustain those whom he has already regenerated and incorporated into his family, which is his church. Those who are born anew have a twofold life. One is physical and temporal which they received in their first birth and is common to all men. The other is spiritual and heavenly, which is given them in their second birth and is effected by the word of the gospel in the communion of the body of Christ. This life is not common to all, but only to the elect of God. For the support of physical and earthly life God has ordained earthly and material bread. This bread is common to all, just as life is common to all. For the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, he has sent a living bread which came down from heaven, John 6, verse 51. Namely, Jesus Christ, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers when he is eaten by them, that is, spiritually appropriated, and received by faith. To represent to us the spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of his body, and wine as a sacrament of his blood. He testifies to us that as certainly as we take hold of the sacrament in our hands, and eat and drink it with our mouths, by which our physical life is then sustained, so certainly do we receive by faith as the hand and mouth of our soul the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior in our souls for our spiritual life so far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, imagine the nervousness of Nicodemus. He is someone who wants to speak to Jesus Christ, but at the same time, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a sect of Jews that rose up in the time between the Old and the New Testament. And the name Pharisee means separate or to detach. They considered themselves to be set-apart people. Those who held fast to the teachings of Moses. And held fast to them even better than God's people who had been set apart as a whole. Now, they were actually quite well known as good teachers and interpreters of the law. The problem was that they lifted up the traditions that had been passed down to them by people who had taught them. They believed that these traditions had been passed down to them from the days of Moses. And because of that, they held them up to the same level as Scripture quite often. Sadly, they became self-satisfied in what they did considering themselves to have scored points in righteousness because they held on to these other teachings so well when no one else around them acted nearly as holy as themselves. And this self-satisfaction had led them as a group to become very angry with Jesus when he came and he challenged their teachings. And he taught them the true meaning of what God had intended by the scriptures instead of what they had added to it. And so this is the atmosphere that you have, this atmosphere of tension between the Pharisees and between Jesus, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him questions. Now, it's true that asking Jesus a question wasn't anything unusual. The other Pharisees had been doing this already. The thing is, though, that throughout his ministry, the Pharisees have been asking questions from Jesus with an agenda in mind. They wanted him to trip, to stumble, to say something that he should not. They wanted to be able to convict him by his words, and because of that, make him seem less than he is. And this is not the way that Nicodemus wants to talk to Jesus, Nicodemus has been convicted by the teachings of Christ and by the miracles that accompany his teaching and it quickly becomes very clear that he's more sincere and he's more open than most of his fellow Pharisees. But there is one point that he gets hung up on when he's speaking with Jesus. Now it's Lord's Supper again next week and has has become our pattern, we will take some time this afternoon to look ahead to that and prepare our hearts to reflect on our lives and our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And today we'll do this by looking at the summary of scripture that we've read in the Belgian Confession, as well as this question of Nicodemus. We're going to look in particular at what the authors of our confession have described as being born anew, or in the language of John, being born again. And we'll see this under the following theme and points. Born again. First of all, what? And second, food for this new life. Now, in our churches today, this can be somewhat of a loaded term. Born again. We get a little bit hung up on the question of what it means. And with reason. Because the term born again carries so much weight with it, there is a lot of baggage that comes with bringing out these words. But it's also a powerful image, one which Jesus Christ himself has given us. And so we should reflect on what this means. It can be helpful because of this to look at John 3 where Jesus does talk about this and reflect on what exactly does he mean. So we have Nicodemus here sitting in the cool evening air and speaking with Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him a question about his origins. He wants Jesus to confirm that he is a teacher come from God. But Jesus, in responding to him, sees a bigger question That lies in his heart. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he has been living the same way as many of the other Pharisees have been up to this point. But there seems to be something missing, and he shows this by the fact, the very fact that he comes to Jesus Christ to speak with him. And so Jesus, instead of answering his first question, goes straight to the heart of the matter and says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Obviously, Nicodemus is confused. But he does see the direction that Jesus is going with. He doesn't ask Jesus, well, where did that come from?" He recognizes that Jesus has said something to him that deals with that bigger, underlying question that he has had. Now, Jesus is clearly not talking about a physical being born again, and so Nicodemus points that out, that would be impossible. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus himself is likely old at this point in time, and he's got this picture of himself as an old man crawling back into the womb of his mother, and he's thinking, how is this possible? Obviously, this can't work. But Jesus responds, and he clarifies to him what he means. Jesus says, Amen, amen, I say to you, or in our version, most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, I'm not joking when I use this kind of language. I'm genuinely sincere. A man needs to be born again. To be born again, he says, is to have a spiritual rebirth one that's brought out by the word of the gospel as it goes out and is proclaimed among the body of Christ. It's the good seed in Christ's parable of the sower that hears the word of the gospel that has its land in good soil and then has it bear fruit 50 or even a hundredfold. Nicodemus had been captured in this view of the other Pharisees that was too earthly focused on balance and rules and on all of the outward signs and ceremonies. Now, Christ held to them too. He was circumcised and dedicated as a child. He went to the temple for the festivals. You can see this when he's a child and when he's an adult. He paid the temple tax. He, when the gospel speak of him, going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, Jesus followed these things as well. There's nothing wrong with these things. But these things of themselves do not address the heart. To be born again, we need that transforming work of the Spirit. And this is what Christ is talking about by saying we need to be transformed by water and the Spirit. Now, this language around being transformed by water and the Spirit commentators have taken it a few different ways they consider water maybe well maybe that's the water of of being born when you know the water breaks and there's amniotic fluid coming out and then rebirth of the spirit maybe that's what he's talking about others have thought well maybe it's the water of baptism that's coming out here but no jesus is using old testament ceremonial imagery imagery of the ceremonies that Nicodemus would understand. There, when it speaks about renewal, regeneration, or new life, it uses the picture of sprinkling with water for purification as an image for the work of the Holy Spirit as he takes out our old, dead hearts of stone and he replaces them with a heart of flesh, pointing to a new life, a new life that's given to us in Christ. As one theologian writes, as he gave our first parents the physical breath of life in Genesis 2 verse 7, God breathes his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who regenerates our souls and who transforms our minds. As a result, if anyone is in Christ, quote, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. End quote. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. But the question then arises, especially for us as we are looking ahead to the Lord's Supper. The question then arises, what does it look like to have a reborn life? And this becomes especially important to us as we do reflect on our lives. And we do see sin coming to the forefront of our lives. We hear Jesus Christ speaking, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And we think of our sins, we think of what we share with so much of the world. And we think, does rebirth mean I'll stop sinning? Will being a new person transform me so completely? And what does that mean for me now? Because I do see sin still in my life. Well, for this, we'll look at our second point, food for this new life. As we come into this new life, the Belgic Confession points out that we need food to continue in Christ in this life that he grants us. And they take this from the words of Christ himself. Christ speaks about bread from heaven later in the Gospel of John. So why do we need this and, and what does this look like? Well, in order to understand this, we do need to reflect on those final words in John 3, verse 21. But he who does the truth, contrasting that, actually, let's go back to verse 20 for a moment. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And it's in that contrast that we need to remain for a moment, that we need to reflect on it for a moment. There are days in which saints, in which believers can fall into sins. So how does this work in light of what we just read? I'd like us to reflect on the fifth chapter of the Cans of Dort in connection with this. And if you have time this coming week as you prepare for the Lord's Supper, then I would encourage you to to take some time and, and dwell in this chapter of the Canons of Dort for a little while. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. It speaks to us about the reality of the Christian life, even the life of the Christian that is born again. So first of all, it points out that we are not without sin. Those whom God, according to his purpose, calls into the fellowship of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by his Holy Spirit, he certainly sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and body of sin. So sin does not rule over us anymore, we're taught. Scripture teaches us that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but he will always give us a way out from under it. And 1 John 1 verse 8 affirms this, right? In the first letter of John, in writing to believers, the apostle there says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so the Canons of Dort goes on to point out daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best works of the saints. These are, for them, a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put to death the flesh more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and to strive for the goal of perfection. But it's not just daily sins of weakness that we have to fight with either, is it? Saints can fall into serious sins. We only have to think of David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, or Peter, who even denied his very Lord. The rebirth that is given to us is truly a new life. And it's strong enough that it can't be overcome by the flesh. Yet those who have been born again are not, as our canons point out, always so led and moved by God that they can't in particular actions turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace and be seduced and yield to the lusts of the flesh. They must therefore constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. And what's the consequence of these sins? They greatly offend God. They incur the guilt of death. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes, for a while, lose the sense of God's favor. It's a serious thing. And as we come to the table of the Lord, whether our history includes daily sins of weakness or more serious sins, we need to be aware of that that our sins do grieve God and that they grieve God deeply. But they are not the end of the road for us. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not mean that you are not born again, that you are somehow unborn again. Because you see, God in His mercy doesn't completely withdraw from those who are His. And even caught in the grips of serious sins, they are convicted and they're brought to the same place of King David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. The one who has been bought by God and the one who has been born again is brought from darkness into light. And this Brings us back to those two verses that we are looking at. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You have been brought from darkness into light. And that does mean that there's a difference even in your sin. If you've been brought by, bought by God, then your sin, which is done in yourself, will chafe within you. Not because you fear the outcome of when it comes to light, but because you know that it grieves and angers God. It won't sit comfortably. You won't justify it. You won't downplay it. Instead, you recognize it for what it is and you take full ownership of it. And you recognize that you have, by your actions, damaged your relationship with God and severely wounded your own conscience. And so you come before God and you come into the light and you let the light reveal it for what it is. And it's that coming into the light that is the work of God because it's He that has brought you to that point, brought you to repentance brought you into the light. That is what is done in God. David here in his repentance lays himself bare before God and he's willing to take whatever God sends his way. Whatever comes his way because of this sin, he'll receive without complaint so that all who witness him will see that God is just. Whatever comes his way, he will say, God has allowed this to happen to me, and God is just, and so I will accept it from his hand and look to him for strength to carry it through, in the face to carry me through. In the face of God's righteousness, he, like Job, will cover his mouth. He'll respond humbly and righteously because he has been born again. This is what God works within him. This isn't something that we can do of ourselves or even desire to do of ourselves. We want to be like the wicked, hiding in the light, hating the light, not coming to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. And yet it's the strength that God gives us to take us here. In this way, even our response to our sins can show the world who we truly are. As one who is born again, when you sin and then respond in true repentance, your return to the truth, your return to the light can be shown for what it is. Your repentance can be shown to be the work of God. Your yearning for forgiveness and restoration to God is real. Even your response to your sin given you by God's grace, and the work of his spirit is, as Christ says to Nicodemus, done in God. And so, as our Lord's Supper form declares, we don't come to the table to declare that we are blameless in ourselves, but rather we come to the table to declare that we are worthy of blame in ourselves and that we find a righteousness outside of ourselves in Christ. Now if we don't find this response to sin in our heart, then we need to refrain from the table of the Lord. If we would rather dwell in darkness then rather hold on to this sin that's so dear to us, then we need to refrain from the table of the Lord. Hold back your hand from taking part. But if you are in humility coming to Christ and you truly repent, then you are the one that Christ meant it for because He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who feeds us this heavenly bread, which is his own body, who washes us clean and by his Spirit sanctifies us, who has established that relationship between us and God. As Christ himself declares to Nicodemus, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. And this is the hope that we can hold on to. We are worthy of condemnation, but we look each and every day to Christ for our food, to nourish and sustain our spiritual life, and remind ourselves that this condemnation is wiped out. It's covered over. It's paid for. We look to Christ to remind us that we do have eternal life in Him, and that we are reconciled to God through Him. And that even though we have our own sins and shortcomings, God will accept us and have mercy on us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Just as with physical food, we need constant spiritual food. We need that regular reminder of Christ our Lord's sacrifice for us. We need the reminder that it is, as we read in Romans 2 verse 4, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this is the place of Lord's Supper as we take part in it next week, that through this we see Jesus Christ as our true food and drink to life eternal. It's here in the Lord's Supper that we are fed by Christ, that we each and every day seek our life in Him. And as we read in Belgian Confession, article 35, it's here in the Lord's Supper, that Christ testifies to us, that as certainly as we take hold of the sacrament in our hands and we eat and we drink it with our mouths, by which our physical life is then sustained, so certainly do we receive by faith as the hand and the mouth of our soul the true body and the true blood of Christ, our only Savior in our souls for our spiritual life. So certainly is it true. And so we are strengthened by our food in Christ once again to face a new day, a new week, a new life, born again and depending on him. Amen.